Decisive Point introduces Conversations on Strategy, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who explore timely issues in national security affairs. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Conversations on Strategy welcomes Dr. Thomas F. Lynch III, Dr. Conrad C. Crane, and Dr. Todd Greentree. Lynch is the author of Deconstructing the Collapse of Afghan National Security and Defense Forces, which was featured in the autumn 2022 issue of Parameters. Lynch is a Distinguished Research Fellow in the Institute of National Strategic Studies of the National Defense University. A retired Army colonel with Afghanistan tours, Lynch publishes frequently on Afghanistan. Crane is currently a research historian in the Strategic Studies Institute of the Army War College. A retired Army officer, Crane holds a Ph.D. from Stanford University. Greentree is a former U.S. Foreign Service officer. Currently, he's a member of the Changing Character of War Center at Oxford University, and he teaches at the Global and National Security Policy Institute at the University of New Mexico. Thanks so much for making time for this today. Tom, would you please just give us a brief synopsis of your article? Yeah, hi, Stephanie. Uh, thanks for having me here and great to be with uh, Con and Todd. I thought it was a good time to publish something that reviewed the history of why it was not surprising that the Afghan national military wound up where it is. And so my article goes into that focusing in three substantive areas. First, it's to define the fact that the Afghan military was never designed by the U.S. and its partners to stand alone. There were critical capabilities that it would have required to stand alone against an autonomous insurgency with external patrons that were never present and could not have been expected to be present. Second, I thought it important to chronicle the fact that the important linkages between the Afghan military and particularly American support military structures, these were already pulling apart as early as 2018, not in the last year, not subsequent to the Doha Accord of February 2020, but had been pulling apart pretty visibly for those that were paying attention starting at least in 2018. And so I kind of go through what those were as well. And then finally, I offer here this notion that it is a myth that the Afghan national military fell apart unexpectedly at the end. There were a number of government organizations, government agencies, military leaders, as well as non-government agencies on the ground that were reporting flaws, particularly in the morale that were very, very visible starting in 2018 and became acute subsequent to the Doha Accord. That was an accord between the United States government and the Afghan Taliban. The government of Afghanistan was not a party to that. And indeed, the accord that we signed in February of 2020 really committed the United States to withdraw and committed the Afghan government to negotiate with its enemy, the Afghan Taliban. And the Afghan Taliban, in response to that, gave several promises. They made a formal promise not to attack American and coalition forces, but not to stop attacking Afghan government or Afghan military forces. And indeed, this put the Afghan military forces formally in a place where they had been at least informally since 2018 as the monkey in the middle, without the organic qualitative ability to fight a qualified and capable Afghan Taliban insurgency, but with the knowledge that the United States had a clock ticking and we were going to get out and they were going to be left alone. And therefore, it made great sense that they were already bartering and bantering behind the scenes to cut the best deal they could for them and their families and therefore to collapse rather quickly once the United States military was fully out of country and the Afghan Taliban had not politically reconciled with the government of Afghanistan. 
Khan, you say our approach to security assistance in Afghanistan was flawed in the very beginning by a problem with advising and assisting. Will you expand on that, please? We're glad to. My point is that since World War II, the United States has made a common mistake in its attempts to advise and assist is we always try to create indigenous security forces that are modeled like us. So we end up with a force that is heavily dependent on firepower, requires extensive sustainment that they really cannot do, which is one of the points that Tom brings up. We create forces that can't really be maintained or sustained if we're not there. A new twist in the model has been also an over-reliance on elite units. Sir William Slim, in his excellent memoir on World War II, Defeat into Victory, has a part where he really criticizes the creation of elite units because they take the best troops out of conventional forces and dilute the quality of those conventional forces. And in Afghanistan, we did the same thing. We quickly created an Afghanistan special forces and took the best troops out of the conventional forces, which were much more important than the special forces group we set up. We also had a similar problem with the Air Force. We gave them the right aircraft, the Super Tucanos, which are much more appropriate and much easier to maintain than sophisticated jets, but at the same time, we set them up as a separate Air Force. I actually did some consulting with the leadership on trying to fix problems with the Air Force, and the Air Force may have been configured to support the ground forces, but they wanted to fly independent missions like they had B-52s. And also, it became the bailiwick of the Afghan elites. So between this idea they were going to be an independent Air Force and the elite attitudes, it made any kind of joint operations almost impossible. I mean, a better model would have been the U.S. Marine Corps instead of U.S. Air Force to have an Air Force that was tightly tied to ground forces instead of independent. We did the same thing in Vietnam. We tend to repeat these same problems with the way we structure these indigenous security forces. Tom, what are your thoughts here? First, as Khan notes, there's this issue we have post-World War II of trying to make them look like us. But when we don't make them look like us, and there are many instances where we didn't, to include going back with the South Korean forces prior to the North Korean attack in 1950, we tend to limit things where we think we have innate ability and where we want to constrain that side from having that ability for fear that they have a different political agenda. So in the case in the 1940s or 1950s with the South Koreans, we were concerned that South Korean leader Syngman Rhee would use souped-up artillery and American-style aircraft to go attack the North, which we didn't want to happen until after the North attacked first. We also, early on in South Vietnam, limited the design and things we provided them because we didn't want them ranging North and going after the Chinese, for example, and provoking a war there. Here is a highlight in the article. There are two other things that influence the design of the Afghan military forces to, as Khan says, look like us, but not all the way to the high end, which is back to my point about them not being able to stand alone to provide their own security against neighbors in a dangerous neighborhood. The first of those is our concern over costs. We're concerned that if we give them too much high-end stuff, it's going to be too expensive, too difficult. And so as Khan mentions, sometimes we look beyond that, but other times we find ourselves constrained by that. And I argue here that's what we were with the Afghan National Security Forces, particularly in the 2000s. And we were back and forth and back and forth about give them more. No, give them less. No, we can't afford it. So let's us use our equipment that allows for these things that we don't want them necessarily to have. Long range aircraft that could range into Pakistan, for example, or long range artillery that could be threatening to other neighbors or lots of long haul logistics aircraft. But the second piece of that has to go with the regional geopolitics, and that is the limitations imposed by the fact the United States was also conducting the global war on terror with Pakistan as a vital non-NATO partner. 
And the Pakistanis had their own regional concerns. The Pakistanis would work with us when we were going after certain kinds of global terrorists. But in their mind, there were other kinds of people that we called terrorists, which they saw as indigenous quasi-military groups that were important to their existential fight against India, the country that they see as their most worrisome security threat, and a country that they felt for decades was always trying to find a back door through Afghanistan to produce at least mischief, if not try to topple the Pakistani government. It was in an appreciation of our other partner, Pakistan's interests, the fact that Pakistan not only feared India, but also saw the Afghan Taliban as one of those trustworthy militant groups that would stand against Indian nefarious activity in Afghanistan. This also circumscribed the design of the Afghan military forces so they didn't have long-range strike aircraft. They didn't have long-range artillery. They didn't have the kind of logistics that would allow them to campaign because not only do we not want to pay for it, but the Pakistanis didn't want that on their doorstep unmanaged by the Americans. There were those limitations that were always there. Meaning you were either going to get an Afghan government that was going to succeed and topple the Taliban insurgency, which we really never got close to, in large measure because the Pakistanis weren't with us in causing that to happen. They found a gray zone area and acted like they weren't supporting the Afghan Taliban, but in reality, they were supporting them as a hedge against India. When push came to shove and the Taliban were still resilient and there were no clear political negotiations happening between the Ghani government and the Afghan Taliban, now the Afghan military... And security forces are truly the monkey in the middle. They're looking at a U.S. government that said, we're getting out. And they're saying, we can't stand alone against this resurging group of insurgents. As a matter of fact, these insurgents are attacking us now, proportionally far higher than they're attacking the American and the coalition forces, separating us further, splitting us apart. And we can't manage that because we're not designed for that. So there are two parts of this that I try to highlight in the article. There's our own internal fiscal considerations, constraints, and ideation, where we think we're better to provide these high and capacity things ourselves to limit the cost of building this Afghan security force model like us versus the Pakistani security concerns, which do not want to see those independent characteristics in the Afghan force, more willing to trust us as counterterrorism partners with these high insecurities, but in the process, making it so the Afghan military cannot stand or hope to stand against a lively, vibrant Afghan Taliban insurgency with safe haven in Pakistan when push comes to shove in 2020 in 2021. Back to you, Colin. All excellent points. I mean, the dilemma, I guess, is the fact that we are always going to leave. And that the question is, for those of us involved in security assistance, trying to create these structures, it's nice to have an idea when that's going to be so you can structure the forces to do that. And I'm sure we'll get into this later. And that's, did we really have to leave? We stuck around in Korea for 30 years waiting for democracy to appear and fought a very nasty, low-intensity conflict there in the 60s and 70s. But we still stuck around. Tom's right. We had a lot of structures there that only we could provide. Again, the question is, should we have done a better job planning for the exit strategy? Todd, we haven't heard from you on this yet. What I have to say is based on experience and things that occurred to me at the time when I was in Afghanistan, I think that both Tom and Khan also, because they were involved, are not dealing from a rear view mirror perspective. I love the monkey in the middle analogy because there are so many dimensions or ways to unpack that idea and see how it applies. The U.S.-Pakistan enormously fraught, complex relationship with lots of history, and the Pakistanis with enormous history 
one of the reasons that we never really got a handle on that relationship is because we were not aware enough of our own history with the Pakistanis. Another dimension of their early involvement in Afghanistan has to do with Pashtunistan. And this is the idea that there's this Duran line that the Brits drew that crossed across the Pashtun population where the Taliban insurgency came from. And Afghanistan had always tried to take advantage of that with Pakistan by stirring up cross-border sentiments. This was the reason that Pakistan started supporting early Islamic militants in Afghanistan in the early 1970s to oppose them. But the Pakistanis sent their first Pashtun groups to create problems where into Indian-controlled Kashmir in 1948. They go way back on this issue. Going back to the security force assistance issue, which I think is a critical piece of putting together the whole strategic picture of what went wrong in Afghanistan. Adding on to Khan's comments about American way of war clashing with Afghan way of war, we also have a huge problem, which is from the very beginning, what was it that the U.S. was focused on? It was focused on counterterrorism, basically fighting a war. And as we got more and more involved in Afghanistan, that combat role retained its importance. So as we would expect with American way of war, combat forces, elite and not, received priority. That left security force assistance distinctly in a second rank place. A couple of quick ideas from experience. One, first commander I worked for, great guy by the name of Scott Spellman. Scott Spellman is currently commander of the Army Corps of Engineers. And I realized for the first time working with him, hey, engineers make great counterinsurgents because they build things in difficult circumstances. And he got that. There was in that same command a young MP who was a National Guard MP who came out of state police force. He brought something for working with police forces that I hadn't seen before. He wasn't involved in combat, but his role was extremely important. And then, of course, the negative example, which I think everybody saw a lot of, U.S. majors who were assigned as mentors to Afghan general officers. Question for Tom. Given that the intent of U.S. negotiations with the Taliban was exit and not peace, would it have been possible to somehow or other preserve the integrity of Afghan security forces and maintain the role of the U.S. as a source of stability rather than instability? Yeah, excellent question, Todd. In the article, I intentionally pick up in the summer of 2018 on that point because the way in which we do start finally negotiating with the Afghan Taliban, I would argue, as I do in this article and some previous writings, does prejudge the outcome. And in this case, the outcome was that we were not going to have a future military to military role or relationship absent something directly happening, which would have been the Afghan Taliban finding a political accommodation with the democratic government of Afghanistan, or I should say the government of Ashraf Ghani at that time. And even if that were to happen, as I mentioned in the article, then you would have had to do some kind of combination between current constructed Afghan military forces and Taliban forces to bring those together, to do some kind of disarmament, demobilization, disaggregation, stand them in position. And yet here you would be bringing together a insurgent guerrilla force with a counterinsurgent national force. And even there, it was going to be extremely difficult to do that. The history of governments trying to make that happen is very sketchy in terms of how well it works, how well it doesn't work, and whether it holds together politically. 
the bottom line here was so long as the Afghan Taliban was not defeated or neutralized, then two things were vital to understand. Either the Afghan government and its military would have to have continuing outside assistance, the United States principally with its coalition partners, militarily as well as to support its economics and government status, or the Afghan military would have to stand alone against the Taliban, which was favored by the Pakistanis as a better alternative to a government in Afghanistan that might get too cozy with India in the absence of Big Brother America sitting over the top of everything. So you had this kind of a perfect storm here so that once you made a decision to depart when the Afghan Taliban was not out of the picture, you were going to come up with two very awkward outcomes, either trying to piece together a combined military of these two other militaries that were very much opposed to each other, or you were going to have an Afghan military that couldn't stand alone against a well-enabled and well-motivated Afghan Taliban military arm. Once in 2018, the Trump administration makes the decision to independently negotiate with the Taliban, the writing is on the wall. Informally, at that point, the Taliban, and I would argue their handlers in Pakistan, meaning the intelligence services in Pakistan, they got this. And starting in mid-2018, when the administration signaled they were going to move in the direction of negotiating America getting out, we see an informal drop that's noteworthy in the number of Afghan Taliban claimed attacks against American military or coalition military forces and also coalition political and diplomatic support forces. It's palpable starting in mid-18 as the Trump administration shifts into this negotiating phase from what had been kind of a miniature surge that was approved by the Trump administration in late 2017 to kind of go and put the Taliban on their heels. By mid-2018, the Trump administration has given up on that, and they're announcing that they're going to start negotiations. And indeed, by that fall, September of 2018, they announced Ambassador Zalmay Khalizad, a former ambassador to Afghanistan and expat Afghan, to go and start these negotiations. From that point forward, as I chronicle in the article, you see the Afghan Taliban taking an informal, calculated step to not attack Americans, but continue to put the pressure on the Afghan military. And this starts to, I argue, pull psychologically apart what had been a very close and necessarily close relationship between those two. And then in February of 2020, you get the Doha agreement signed between America and the Afghan Taliban. And now it's formally laid out. The Afghan Taliban agree, we're not attacking you Americans. We're not attacking the coalition, but we're not making any promises about anybody else. And we went back to them and General Scott Miller and others got a special classified annex, which we know was there, but we can't know for sure it was in there. But basically saying, well, wait a minute now, if you guys start vigorously attacking the Afghans, then we're going to have the right to defend them. We know in retrospect, the Taliban never really agreed that that was legitimate. They just tried to step around it enough so they could continue the military campaign while they waited for America to continue to get out. And so I mentioned that because this pulling apart of a military that had to have these support structures without a concurrent drawdown of the military capacity of the Afghan Taliban in large measure, but not solely because the Pakistani military intelligence services didn't want to see the Afghan Taliban vanish. You were at the point where it was always a matter of how quickly the Afghan military forces were going to collapse when you pulled out, as we finally did a year ago. Bon, I'd love to hear your answer to this as well. For me, the big problem in Afghanistan is we don't really decide to come up with a counterinsurgency strategy until we've been there almost a decade. And by then, it's just too late. I mean, we have so many lost opportunities early on to try to do it right, and we just don't. 
Clausewitz talks about recognizing the nature of the warrior in, and we never quite figure out the great game in that area or what our real purpose is until it's really too late. Yeah, Stephanie, on this point, I think it's clear that we didn't devise a workable counterinsurgency strategy, but I think there's some caveats that matter here. First and foremost, in the mid-2000s, as we were focused on counterterrorism, we treated the Afghan Taliban as a defeated insurgent group, and we, particularly in the Bush administration of the 2000s, accepted the word of our counterterrorism partner, the Pakistanis, that, quote, they got the Taliban. They would take care of the Taliban. So that set in place a framework where, as Todd says, we kind of misunderstood the history there. We thought take care of meant take out. What Musharraf said and what he meant were two different things as we heard it. He didn't mean we're going to take them out. He meant we're going to take care of them. And in his mind, it was take care of them as long as you guys are over there doing counterterrorism stuff and until you leave us alone. Because we don't trust that the Indians aren't going to come back door on us. And we think the Afghan Taliban, as difficult as they are because of Pashtunistan and other things that Todd mentioned, they're a better choice than a lot of the other choices that could be in Afghanistan. And the Pakistanis stick to that all the way through. And I have always referred to our efforts at surging in Afghanistan, as we did in 04 and 05, as we did again in the Obama administration, and as we did again to counter ISIS in 2014-15. I refer to all of those as, at least in some measure, an effort to test the hypothesis that if we put enough military force into Afghanistan and showed kind of a counterinsurgency blanket of Americans, that somehow the Pakistanis would change their security framework enough to say, okay, we don't need the Afghan Taliban or people like that. That we're okay with you guys. And the bottom line is the Pakistanis never made that step. They couldn't. They found their challenges with India still too dominant and too worrisome, and they didn't trust that we'd stay there. And in the latter point, they're probably right. Whether they're right about nefarious Indian activity, no matter what, unless the Afghan Taliban are in the mix for them, I don't know that that's true or not, but that's their perspective. Basically, if you count our initial invasion, we took four cracks at changing that security paradigm. It didn't change. When you talk about inevitability, were we able to ever win a counterinsurgency in Afghanistan? My answer is not without a change in the Pakistani security narrative about India and Afghanistan backdoor mistrust. And that didn't happen. And we tested it two or three times. And as a consequence of that, we could never win an insurgency in Afghanistan, but we could succeed in both deterring and then potentially defeating feeding a global terrorist network that would take advantage of the Afghan Taliban to plan, plot, and then launch credible international terror against America and our allies. The jury is not still fully in because bad things can still happen in Afghanistan. But if you look objectively at the 20 years we were involved there, you will see that we had measurable success in preventing global catastrophic terror from emanating out of Afghanistan. We have examples, multiples of exchanges of information between us, the Afghans, even the Pakistani intelligence services, allowing us to disrupt plots, plans, and activities either at the source, that is arresting or killing those on the battlefield who are making those plans, or even arresting things that were about to happen, like plots against bridges in Baltimore and other things, plots against American forces in Germany, where we intercepted a guy who was an operative for Al-Qaeda before that all happened. I mention all that just to say, Todd makes an excellent point that Khan falls in on counterterrorism versus counterinsurgency. It's fair to say we never got that right, but it's important to know that Pakistan played heavily in that. But it's also true to say that if you look at the terrorist side of the ledger, arguably, and we can debate whether the cost was too much, but arguably we did achieve that particular outcome over the course of 20 years. 
Todd, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, like maybe we should have a whole another opportunity to continue the discussion and just fall in on that cost of counterterrorism, its effectiveness versus becoming accidental counterinsurgents, because that's what we were. Of course, Dave Kilcullen has that book that he wrote, The Accidental Guerrilla, in which the central idea is that, hey, the Taliban are fighting us in Afghanistan because we happen to be in their space. And that's who they are. They're Islamic warriors who fight against foreign infidels. We were accidental counterinsurgents by the same token. The only reason we ended up fighting the Taliban was because they helped Al-Qaeda, which got into our space on 9-11. That whole trigger of contingency dragged us into this long, long war that ended up a failure. I'd like to swing back just for a minute and go back to the idea of war termination, where we were talking about the problem of could the negotiating process have worked out in a way that ended up keeping the Afghan security forces intact and the U.S. having a stabilizing role rather than a destabilizing one. Start with Pakistan. Again, I don't want to make this about Pakistan, but in some ways, Carlotta Gall came up with a great title for a book about Afghanistan by calling it the wrong enemy. And in that sense, the Pakistanis really were the key to getting a handle on this. And because we failed with the Pakistanis, we failed in Afghanistan. Quick point related to that. This was the second time that the U.S. failed with war termination in Afghanistan. The first time was when the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan in 1989, and we were entirely unprepared to play a constructive role, although there was an effort in actually resolving that conflict. And again, the Pakistanis were in the middle of that. The point to me on the second failed effort at war termination is we weren't really trying to end the war. We were just trying to negotiate an exit. That's what it was. And if anybody thinks that we were actually involved in war termination or peace negotiations, I think they're fooling themselves and we were fooling ourselves at the same time. Todd, you brought up some really good questions in our pre-podcast discussion, and I'm just going to throw these out here and we have about five minutes. Was Afghanistan ever winnable? What should the aims have been? What conditions and time frame might have produced success? Tom, if you want to start. In terms of a counterinsurgency, Afghanistan was not winnable. And the monkey in the middle of the Afghan security forces is just a data point of evidence that that was not going to happen. And a lot of the reason for that is the dimensions of the Indo-Pakistani security dilemma and how we could never find our way through that Gordian knot. We had tried, we hoped that Musharraf would take care of it in the early 2000s. We hoped that a big surge in 09 and 10 would show our determination and whack the Taliban so hard that they would have to be abandoned as this go-to insurgency inside of Afghanistan. But the Pakistanis looked at that and didn't take parallel action. They didn't have any better alternatives, and they still thought we were going to get out, and they were right. We wound up trying to get out. And then we tried one more time in 2014-15 as ISIS started to appear there and as the Afghan uh, military, you know, seemed to lose track of al-Qaeda types. And, and even that didn't change the Pakistani security interest. I don't think that the counterinsurgency was ever winnable. Now, what about the counterterrorism aim? The original aim, the dominant one, the thing that brought us there in the first point to prevent Afghanistan or by extension, the Afghanistan-Pakistani border from becoming yet again, as it had on 9-11 and before that, with other plans and plots by al-Qaeda or global terrorists, from being a point of successful planning, plotting, training, and then execution of global catastrophic terrorism events on the United States and our allies and partners. 
There, I think the record is at least debatably positive. That is, we succeeded. We didn't win, okay? We're not done yet. Al-Qaeda's not gone. ISIS is not gone. Salafi jihadi terrorism is not gone. But it's been on its heels for the last 20 years, and we've not seen successful execution of catastrophic terror against America and its allies since 9-11 emanating from that part of the world. So I would argue that we can and did achieve success in the counterterrorism mission as defined. We could not have and did not have the ability to win the counterinsurgency. Now, the fruitful debate in the future was, was it worth the cost of trying to manage both a counterinsurgency and a counterterrorism effort for 20 years to get there? And I think that's a different and legitimate question that perhaps we can address another time. Thank you. Juan, we haven't heard from you in a while. What do you think? Okay, I just hope people are listening to this podcast and read Tom's article, because one of my favorite sayings is, we have never been able to never do this again. So we'll be talking about this again. I guess I just think there was so many lost opportunities early on. Victory and counterinsurgency is very hard to define because a lot of times the result is a very messy one that can be interpreted either way. It usually ends up in some kind of political compromise where everybody gets something. Part of the problem is the whole campaign in Afghanistan, they're only planning about 72 hours ahead. We criticize going into Iraq in 2003 for having an incomplete plan for what happens after major conflict ended. In Afghanistan, we had none. And so we were a blind man to start with, roaming around in the dark. Again, we staggered around a decade, and I think there were so many lost opportunities. I've been on a couple of panels with General Petraeus since, and we've discussed about could some kind of an American presence have created a more stable result, some kind of a different outcome. Again, victory is hard to define. Tom's talked very well about the impact of when we decide we're going to leave and everybody knows we're going to leave. So the question is, would some kind of a longer term presence make much of a difference? I don't know. Pakistan's not going to change. The situation's not going to change. But I read the press reports every day about what's going on in Afghanistan right now, and it's so tragic. Just Is there some way that we could have moderated some of that? I just don't know enough about it if we could or not. Todd? Yeah, well, I do have an opinion about that. It requires some counterfactual thinking and arguing, but it's based in an option that actually existed at the time. And if I can mention uh, my own article for parameters uh, in the winter issue, what went wrong in Afghanistan, it's really the central point of it. So I thought that one of the things that Tom captured accurately in his article was that as the negotiations picked up steam, by the time the end game came on, the fighting was not what mattered in the Afghan security forces disintegrating. Rather, it was the negotiations that were taking place, not between the Americans and the Taliban, because those were done, but between the Taliban and the Afghan forces directly. Forget the Afghan government. And a lot of those negotiations were being brokered by local elders to get people who are going to walk away from the army uh, and the police and fold back into their communities or move back, move out entirely. And those negotiations worked pretty well because that was one of the things that enabled the Taliban to take over so fast without a lot of residual fighting. My argument is that in December of 2001, so you got to go back two decades, those conditions were reversed. The U.S. leading coalition with, you know, the famous CIA-supported operation with Afghan militia had just overthrown the Taliban emirate. They were done. 
And the Taliban at that time, in accordance with the Afghan way of war, were flowing in to swear fealty to the new Afghan government, which had just been named at this conference in Bonn, Germany, with uh, Hamid Karzai as the interim president. Local elders were complying with that as well. And very much this is the Afghan way of war. It's basically common to tribal warfare everywhere that people who are involved in fighting are figuring not their membership in uh, national institutions or the oath they take to a national government, but where their survival is going to exist the best for them and their group, their clan of people. I got to learn very closely when I was in with the command group with 10th Mountain Division in Kandahar at the height of the Obama surge. We were very involved in the areas of traditional Pashtun strength, where the Karzais and sort of the ruling Pashtun aristocracy in the government and the Taliban had their origins. Same exact place. And what the people in the Afghan government were saying, of course, this is many years after the fact, was, wow, you should have listened to us in 2001 and 2002 because we wanted to disperse the Taliban. They were coming in. They wanted to go back to their villages. We were going to let them keep their AK-47s, but nothing else. Key to this, we wanted to break their relationships with Pakistan, particularly by bringing their families back across the border and back where they had been for many years and back into their communities. That was an option that was put to the US government during the course of the Bonn Conference, this idea of involving Taliban in negotiations, not necessarily to achieve a share of national power, but just to be recognized as a part of of the Afghan political process. And that was explicitly vetoed. That option was explicitly vetoed, of course, with Vice President Richard Cheney and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld calling the shots that, no, we're not dealing with the Taliban. In my assessment on this regard, that really is what led us down this path. The enemy was al-Qaeda. They were the ones who had attacked us. They were the focus. And we essentially confused the Taliban with al-Qaeda. In a few sentences, final thoughts from each of you. Con, why don't you start? I just hope people listen to this podcast and reading these articles. All these issues are going to come up again, and we just can't make the same mistakes. We eventually got to learn from all this. Todd? So several years ago, I wrote an article about the three movies that help us understand Afghanistan. And really, they're about ourselves. But the movies are, of course, The Godfather, Chinatown, and the third one is Groundhog Day. The point of Groundhog Day is not just that you keep reliving the same day over and over again, because that's what we've been doing on this, as Khan says, but because in Groundhog Day, the idea is that you learn from repeating each day over and over and you advance on that. And that's where I think the importance of Tom's article lies in the three principles, the three conditions that he brings in there at the end. These are things to pay attention to. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in that cycle without ever getting out of it, because this is going to happen again. Tom, will you wrap this up for us? Yeah, thanks. I think that's a perfect setup. And thanks again to Khan and Todd for joining in today, because that's where I want to kind of end as well. It's one thing to go back and say, yeah, you could see this slow motion train wreck happening. You could see how we had set the conditions for it in terms of the ANDSF and its challenges at the end of the day. 
But the question is, to what effect do we go forward from here? And the first thing I try to address at the end of the article is that, as Khan has said and as Todd alludes to, we're going to be here again. We're going to be at a point where we have to look at advising allies and partners in the pursuit of our national interests in a region or an area where there are conflicting, competing, or challenging political and security dynamics that don't necessarily perfectly align with ours. And so the question is, how do you pursue those? At the level of military forces, you know, my recommendations at the end of the article are that we should make sure that we're tailoring our support packages for the countries in question, if they're going to be countries that are working with us, or for groups in question, if they're going to be non-state actors, in accordance with what they can do and what they can accomplish. Not build them beyond that, not build them so that they're platinum outcomes, but do that in a way that allows that to be tailored to what they can accomplish in their area, not U.S.-centric forces or combinations. Second is morale of fighting forces that are our partners is not just an afterthought. We have to consider that, especially we have to consider that at a time when maybe our political interests and theirs are diverging, right? In Afghanistan, clearly the divergence was as we decided we are going to get out and we are going to negotiate independently. But let's take, for example, what's going on right now, perhaps in Ukraine. Right now, there's a commonality and an alignment of purpose in Ukraine basically as the partner slash surrogate force standing against the great power Russia's viewpoint of domination of its periphery and you know establishing who is and who is not in its sphere of influence. Right now, we're aligned, but that doesn't mean we're going to be aligned necessarily going forward. So how do we plan for that so that we do not come to the unhappy event where we wind up either dislocating a partner, abandoning a partner, or setting the conditions for us to come out worse than we went in. And finally, there's this inherent principal agent arrangement. Anytime you're engaged with assisting partners, whether they be state militaries or surrogate partners that are non-state. And so you got to have a plan in place for what happens when you now have divergent interests or divergent ideations, where they may want to go one way, i.e. maybe want to go and start you know, attacking a great power rival of ours, and we like don't want that because we don't want the nuclear spectrum, right? What's our plan for that and how do we implement it? Understanding that sometimes you got to have these plans quietly because saying the obvious thing out loud also can have very debilitating consequences. In Afghanistan, saying the debilitating thing would have been saying in the middle of the summer last year, 2021, that yeah, the government of Afghanistan is not going to stand, its military can't stand, and so we're just getting our people out of here. Well, the problem then for the U.S. government was to say that would almost be like assuring the outcome. And that's what they were hearing from President Ghani and his interlocutors here in America. No, no, don't start withdrawing more people fast. Don't start taking folks out that have been helping us for 20 years to get them out of the way of the Taliban, because if you do that, we're going to collapse. Now, you end up collapsing anyway, but nonetheless, that's kind of what happens when the principal agent dynamic diverges. And my only point in this article is, as Khan says, so we don't wind up doing this again and doing it badly. Think about that going in. So thanks so much for the time, and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this. Thank you to all three of you. If you're interested in learning more about the collapse of Afghan National Security and Defense Forces, you can download the article at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for Volume 52, Issue 3. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.